Well, good morning and uh, happy Reformation Day. Some of you are going to be celebrating the lesser known holiday today um, called uh, Candy Mass. Um, but today actually is uh, Reformation Day. It's a day that is celebrated in a number of places around the world. Um, historic celebration of the beginning of the restoration of the gospel that, that happened in the Reformation. And, and by the way, I am all for candy, all right? All for candy, all in on that. So, well, today we are actually dealing with the heart of the gospel. It's week three of our series called Creed as we are studying together this ancient, uh, historic Christian confession of faith known as the Apostles' Creed. And if you got your Bible or your device, I'd encourage you to get it out, open on, uh, and get it to Matthew chapter 16. And we're gonna be together reading verses 13 through 17 in a few moments. In this series, if you haven't been here, what we are doing is we are joining together with what Christ followers all around the world have been doing for at least 1,600 years. We are confessing our common faith. We're stating what we believe. And one of the realities that we have been learning as we study the Apostles' Creed is this. Following Jesus begins with and never moves beyond belief. In other words, our beliefs matter. Our beliefs matter. Here's the brief definition I've been giving you of the Apostles' Creed. It's a short, memorable summary of the historic Christian faith. And our purpose in studying it is to get a firm grasp on what we believe. So like we've been doing and like we're gonna continue to do, I wanna invite you to stand with me. Uh, we're gonna stand together. We're gonna say the Apostles' Creed together. And I wanna encourage you to say it, always remembering that we are joining with other churches, other Christ followers all around the world doing what Christ followers have been doing for 1,600 plus years. Let's confess our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may have noticed as we have read the Apostles' Creed each week that the section on Jesus is the lengthiest. And this actually makes a lot of sense if you stop to think about it. We're Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And so what's gonna be happening for a few weeks together now is we're gonna be studying about Jesus. We're, we're gonna be asking a lot of questions, questions like who is Jesus and what has Jesus done and what is Jesus doing now? What's Jesus gonna be doing out into eternity? We'll be asking those questions and, and a whole lot more. The famous British theologian N.T. Wright tells a story about the centrality of Jesus to the Christian faith. And I think this story speaks very clearly to where a lot of people are today, um, uh, maybe even some in this room. 
For seven years, Wright was the chaplain at the University of Oxford, and each year, um, as semesters began, he would meet with incoming freshmen, each one of them, just to welcome them into the college. And he, he had something happen almost every time. Many students would just tell him, you know, uh, you, you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. And he had heard this enough that he was always ready with the stock response. He would say, oh, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? And the students would be a little surprised. They would kind of stumble over um, a few phrases trying to explain this God they didn't believe in. You know, they'd talk about a, this vague idea of a being in the sky. This, he was always judging people, um, did a few miracles now and then, kind of an old man, maybe in a rocking chair on the clouds, you know. And, and, and he'd eventually send the bad people to hell and let the good people go to heaven. And Wright calls this the spy in the sky God. And he, he had heard this so often, he's, he had another stock response. He would say, you know, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. And they would be surprised. And then he would say, no, I believe in the God that I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Now the point of N.T. Wright's story is it's very easy for us to adopt some vague idea of who God is from our culture, from stuff we've heard from other people, and we just start thinking that that's who God actually is, when the reality is our ideas have little or nothing to do with the reality of who God is as revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. See, many people think they are rejecting the Christian God, but they're really just rejecting the idea of God that they have, and it really has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. And some people will go on to like deconstruct their faith, and in reality, they're just setting aside false ideas about God instead of coming to understand the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. And I, I really do hope if I am speaking you know, to someone here in this place, that if this is you, that you will make sure you do not reject God for being something that he's never said that he is. See, as Christians, here's what we believe. We believe the clearest revelation of God is seen in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what that means. If you wanna know what God is like, just look at Jesus if you wanna know how God responds to you when you fail, then just look at Jesus in the Gospels as he responds to people who fail. If you wanna know how Jesus feels about your suffering, then just look at how Jesus acts and treats the people that he encounters who are suffering. If you wanna know what God is like, just look at Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the Apostles' Creed answers the most important questions about Jesus. And that's why today and another couple of weeks, we're going to be using the creed to take us back to the Bible to learn who Jesus is. And we're gonna be looking at the most important realities the New Testament writers want us to know. So just to draw us back, we're gonna focus on these lines. I want you to look at the screen and see it again. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Now, we have been talking in this series about what belief is, and then last week we talked about who God the Father is, and now we're moving to Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And what I want you to notice is, as you look at that confession right there 
this part of the creed gives us three titles of Jesus. It focuses us on Jesus' power, uh, on his transcendence. And so the first thing we need to see about Jesus is how great, how big, how magnificent, how glorious Jesus is. So today, just like we've been doing, like we're gonna continue to do, we're gonna study a text. This week it's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17. We're gonna gain understanding of these three titles and then we're gonna seek to apply them uh, to our lives using those, those four categories, clarity and balance and counsel and reorientation. So let's read uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, what's word on the street? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Like lots of opinions floating around, but notice Jesus is not interested in other people's opinions. He asked this penetrating question in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter is the one who speaks up as usual. And he gives us the words that we're gonna be focusing on today. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, Peter, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And Jesus is just telling Peter, Peter, you, you nailed, you nailed it. Now, what Jesus is doing in these verses is he's pushing his disciples, he's pushing us today to fight through all of the cultural noise and, and opinions and ideas around what other people are saying about Jesus and get crystal clear on what we believe. And here's why Jesus does this. Please listen to me. Everything in life rises and falls. Everything in your life rises and falls on how you answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? See, there's lots of opinions out there, lots of stuff people are saying, but what matters in the end for you is who do you say Jesus is? Now, in verse 16, maybe you noticed Peter gives us two titles of Jesus. He gives us the title of the Christ and then the son of the living God. And Peter voices here what many other places in the New Testament assert that, uh, that of, about who Jesus is. Verses like this and others, they are the, the source of this line in the Apostles' Creed that we're looking at today. Now, in the broader context of the New Testament, these two titles lead the New Testament writers uh, to claim a third title that we see in the creed, and that is that Jesus is Lord. So those are the three titles in the New Testament, the three titles in the creed that tell us who Jesus is. And we're just gonna walk and work our way through each of them. Here's the first one. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Jesus is the Christ. Or you can add next to that word Christ, the word Messiah. See, a lot of people get confused here. A lot of people think that Christ is like Jesus' last name. You know, Jesus Christ. But Christ is not his last name. It's a, it's a title. It's a title. Christ is a, a title that comes from the Greek word Christos, which translates a Hebrew word, Mashiach, or Messiah. 
In other words, Christ and Messiah, same thing, same idea. And so when Peter says Jesus is the Christ or Messiah, what's he talking about? What does he mean? Well, he is saying this, Jesus, you are the Old Testament promised one sent to restore God's broken world. Now, if we get hold of this, it will actually help us to understand the whole Bible better. It will help us to understand where Jesus fits in the the Bible storyline. And the Bible has two main sections. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And here I think it's the best way to understand how these two parts of the Bible work together. I first heard this from a pastor named Mark Devers written uh, two outstanding books on this subject. He says, the Old Testament is all about God making promises to renew and restore the world. The New Testament is all about God keeping those promises to renew and restore the world. And the way that God keeps those promises is through Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, is the key that unlocks everything. He unlocks all the promises God has made in the Old Testament to redeem and restore his world. And again and again and again, if you read the Old Testament and you pay attention, you will see it pointing to the person and the works of Jesus. I mean, you could put it this way. If you understand the Old Testament correctly, Jesus is on every page. Someone has observed there are three main ways that the Old Testament points toward Jesus. Promises, prophecies, and patterns. And I wanna give you an example of each of those. First of all, promises. The Old Testament promises that a man is coming who will redeem and renew and restore the world. And we see that promise, first of all, in Genesis 3, 15, right after Adam and Eve sin. God promises that a man born of the woman will come one day and end the work of Satan. This is a promise that points toward Jesus and it started in the garden. It's like on the second page of the Bible, you find Jesus. So there's promises. Second, there's prophecy. All throughout the Old Testament, prophets are pointing forward to this one who will come and redeem and restore God's world. Maybe the most familiar, famous uh, prophecy is in Isaiah chapter 53, which says that a man will come and make an end to our sin by being a suffering servant. 700 years before Jesus is born, God in his mercy predicts how he would make an end to the sin of humanity without making an end to us. Prophecy. Third, there are patterns. And the Old Testament is is just full of of different patterns. Maybe the best example of this are what scholars call the three key offices we see in the Old Testament, prophet and priest and king. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, you see these things, prophet, priest, and kings. Well, what do they do? Well, prophets spoke for God. God revealed his word to his people through prophets. Priests made atonement for the people's sin so that the people could come into God's presence. And then kings, they led God's people in God's kingdom. See, in the gospel writers, you go to the New Testament, what you will see them doing is they present Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the king, who fulfills all these Old Testament patterns. Jesus is the prophet who speaks finally and authoritatively on behalf of God. He's the priest who makes atonement on the cross in his own body so we can now come into God's presence and worship. He's the king, 
that leads us into the kingdom of God. Every page of the Old Testament is pointing toward, leading us toward Jesus. He is the promised one who has come to set God's broken world back in order. So here's what I want you to understand. In Matthew 16, when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, he is saying all of that. He's saying all of that. You are the one that we have been waiting for, that the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. He is saying God is going to save and redeem and restore the world through you. We say Jesus Christ all the time, sometimes in the not the most reverent and helpful ways, right? We say those two words all the time like it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. It's an enormous deal. Peter's confession is enormous. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Second, Jesus is the son of God. In verse 16, again, Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And again, we ask this question, what does Peter mean? Well, there is so much here. But Peter's central idea is that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is the consistent New Testament witness. Couple examples. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1.3. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. A few years ago, uh, Stephen Colbert I was hosting an episode of The Colbert Show. It was, you know, before he took over The Late Show. And this one episode, he had a professor named Bart Ehrman on the show. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a leading scholar and a skeptic. He's the author of many books. Uh, maybe you, you know that Colbert is a, a practicing Catholic, faithful Catholic, who, who states that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you've ever watched the show, you know that, that it's kind of ironic and satire and comedy. It's, you know, you don't hardly know what to take seriously and what to, to set aside. So he's aiming at a lot of comedy, but he gets into this intentional debate with Bart Ehrman on the divinity of Jesus. And if you watch the clip, it's, it's pretty funny. At one point, Bart Ehrman asked Colbert, he says, well, why do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And Colbert has this kind of amazing response. He says, because the New Testament calls him the son of God. Ehrman says, but what does that even mean? And Colbert says, if the son of a duck is a duck, then the son of God is God. Now, Colbert was trying to be funny, but the son of something is that thing, particularly in this case. That's the point right here. The son of God is God. That's what Peter's saying. That's what the apostle Paul says. One of the places he says is so clearly Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And if you don't know it, let me tell you right now, this is the historic teaching of the Christian church for 2,000 years. Jesus is the eternal son of the eternal father. Jesus is 
uncreated, the second person of the Trinity who has become a man. And we're gonna be talking about that in the weeks ahead. He's divine. He's God. Now, I want you to track with this. Because of these two realities, the rest of the New Testament refers to Jesus with our third title from the creed, Lord. Because he's Messiah, because he's the Son of God. You tracking? He's Lord. And that's the third thing I want you to see. Jesus is Lord. This is is the way that the New Testament sums up those, those first titles. Lord is kind of a shorthand for all of this. In fact, this is the most common way that the New Testament refers to Jesus. I, I looked some stuff up, didn't have time to actually do the count for myself. Different people had different numbers. It may depend on you know, who interprets which this word to refer to Jesus in this case or not. Uh, but suffice it to say, it's on every page of the New Testament. One, one source I read said that in the 27 books of the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord over 700 times. It's the most common title for Jesus. Well, what does it mean? Well, essentially it means this. Jesus has absolute authority over our lives. That's what Lord means, right? You know, you understand the meaning of the word. That's what the word means. And I I think we also understand, we get that, we all believe that, right? Jesus is Lord, amen? Amen. But the problem, the problem is living truly under his lordship. Amen. Amen. A little bit more reluctant on that one, I, I get. I understand. But this is the truth. This is the teaching. This is what it means. Jesus has absolute authority over our lives. Now, one of the things I want you to notice in the creed is how this line moves from theological constructs to application. He is the Messiah. He's the son of God. And that means... He's Lord. This, this is what the creed is telling us. And this is where these, the, the, these, these first two titles actually intersect with our lives. So, so whatever title of authority that you can imagine, it means Jesus is that and infinitely more. And he's that over our lives. He's that over this world. He is king. He is ruler. He is boss. He is commander. He's Lord over everything. I'll give you one example drawn from the 700 uh, examples we could look at. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul gives us this beautiful, dramatic picture of his lordship. He says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord today. But as I said a moment ago, not everyone recognizes his authority. Here's the thing. Not everyone recognizes his authority, but one day, one day, everyone will. One day, every knee is going to bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's our three titles. 
Jesus is the Christ or Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore Jesus is Lord. And what I hope you are understanding, grasping, is that the New Testament is teaching and the, the creed, in the creed, we are confessing this reality. Jesus is transcendent. He's all-powerful. Jesus is infinitely great. He is Lord. Now, I want you, having read the creed a few times, just to recall what we said a few moments ago. And I want you to think about how the people who put the creed together, they begin talking about Jesus. Just follow their, their line of thinking. Before they get to his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, which we're going to get to, the first thing that they want us to know is that he's the Christ. He's the son of God. He's the Lord. Jesus is God in the flesh, the promised prophet, priest, and king who has come, come to take his broken world and put it back together. He is Messiah. He is son of God. He is our Lord. So that's what the creed is teaching us. How does this impact our lives? How does knowing Jesus, who he is, change our lives? Again, we're gonna do what we've been doing each week, which is to use our four categories, see how this truth that we confess brings clarity and balance, how it brings counsel to how we live, and how it reorients us as disciples of Jesus. So here's the first category, clarity. How does this clarify life for us, clarify our knowledge of who Jesus is? Well, I wanna approach this in this way, and there I, I could come at it from many angles, but uh, most Americans today hold what scholars call uh, religious pluralism. It's this idea that that different religions, they're all equally valid, that there are multiple paths to God. And here's something interesting, maybe you don't know this, but it's been true for a while. There are surveys that show that a majority of Americans who call themselves Christians also say they believe that. This idea, religious pluralism, is an outgrowth of what is typically called relativism, which is simply the expression of the belief that all a truth is relative, and this is behind uh, what people are thinking when they say things like, you know, uh, as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. Or when people say, you know, uh, I don't believe that, but if it works for you, that's great. Or when they say, you know, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. In other words, in our culture today, most people think that truth is a preference that's what's behind religious pluralism. You know, it's like, well, I prefer Christianity, but you prefer Islam, and she prefers Buddhism, and you could just go down the list. This is the reason why some people will say, well, you know, I don't want to impose my religious beliefs on other people. The Barna Research Group a few years ago did a study and found that 47% of Christian millennials agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's belief with someone of a different faith and hope that they will one day share the same faith. So here's what's happened. We have moved from a place that most of us have always been where we will find ourselves sometimes going, I, I, I don't know if I wanna tell people like at work about Jesus because I'm scared, right? Who's ever thought or felt that one, right? We've all been in that place. I'm nervous, I'm kind of afraid. We've moved from that to well, I think it's morally wrong to try to evangelize someone because that's imposing my religious beliefs on someone else. 
And here's what I'm pretty confident about. I'm pretty confident that some of us in this room say, yeah, I, I, I think like that. The creed helps us. It helps us know how to think about a philosophy called religious pluralism. If Jesus is the Christ, the promised one who is Messiah, if Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king who will put the world back in order, when we understand that Jesus is the son of God, that he's God in the flesh, and when we see the New Testament teaching over and over again, Jesus is Lord, then we can only conclude that according to both the New Testament and the consistent historic teaching of the historic Christian faith by the historic Christian church for 2,000 years now, that Jesus is not one way to God among many. He is the way to God and there is no other. We need clarity on this. As Christ followers, we need clarity. As, as a church, we need clarity. We must take a stand on this. I'm just telling you, if we do not stand on this, we lose the good news. Now, maybe you hear this and you think that I'm being narrow and exclusive. If that's what you're thinking, I would ask you please to remember where I got that from, okay? I did not make this up. If you think that I'm being narrow and exclusive, then here's the reality. You think Jesus is being narrow and exclusive. You say, how can you say that? Well, listen to what Jesus says in John 14, six. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. What do you mean by that, Jesus? No one comes to the Father, no one, except through me. If this is narrow and exclusive, then Jesus is narrow and exclusive. And so are the apostles, you know, who began to spread Jesus' message. This is what Peter preaches, another familiar passage, Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Peter is boldly declaring the gospel to the people who killed Jesus, crucified Jesus. He says this, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter is just saying Jesus is the cornerstone that God is building everything on. You, you remove the cornerstone, the whole building crumbles. The whole hope of the gospel, of the Christian faith, it all crumbles. He's the cornerstone. And, and friends, this is exactly, precisely what Christ followers have believed and proclaimed for 2,000 years. And I understand I know it sounds so exclusive to our postmodern ears, but I wanna suggest something to you. I wanna suggest to you that it is actually the most inclusive news in the world because the gospel of Jesus says we don't get into life with God by anything we do. We don't find life with God by our performance, our works, by being good or being religious. It's not about that. We don't get into life with God because we have a certain socioeconomic status or because we have a certain religious background or ethnicity or we speak a certain language which gives us better access to the divine. These are things that some people have and some people don't. With Christianity, everyone's welcome. Anyone can come. 
The door is always wide open. The way into life with God is simply to recognize that we need help and to see that Jesus Christ is the divine helper that we need. That's it. Anyone, anyone can get in on it. And I, again, if you're here exploring Christianity, I get that this is hard to accept. I understand that it seems narrow-minded to you. Maybe you'd even call it bigoted. Maybe you're wondering, how can you say that? I mean, how can you be so exclusive? I mean, in our cultural context, it's understandable that you might feel that way about how Jesus is represented in the New Testament. But I hope you would understand this is what it means for us to be faithful to Jesus of Nazareth and the claims that he himself made about himself, who he was. See, we believe that we cannot make Jesus, the divine son of God, our Lord, into something more palatable for postmodern sensibilities. And the reason I think at one level that this is good news is because our sensibilities are gonna change. They're probably gonna change in the next decade. Have you noticed how many of the things that we are absolutely forbidden to say or even think today, everybody was saying a few years ago, nobody said it was wrong. Our sensibilities have changed. They're gonna keep changing. Here's the reality. Jesus never changes. He's who he is, who he's always been, who he always will be. We can't change him. And if we change him, we lose the core of our faith. We lose everything. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis set forth a famous line of thought. And if you're wrestling with who Jesus is, I I highly recommend this book. Uh, Before he became a Christian, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He was a world famous scholar. And he began to explore the claims of Christ. And he ended up concluding that they were true and they were real. And he wrote in Mere Christianity what uh, has become known as his trilemma. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, that's kind of a British joke, I think, or else he would be the devil of hell. He continues, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He goes on to write about his conversion and he says for himself, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is Lord. Clarity. Clarity. Second, balance. The creed 
balances us out when we have tendencies to get out of balance in our life with God. And I've, I've been kind of using that illustration of the guy at the gym that's always doing chest and arm day, never does leg day, and he gets all out of whack. And we can do that too in our spiritual life. We can get out of balance, you know, just, just thinking about the things that we prefer to think about God, but then ignoring other realities about God Interestingly, a lot of times the reality we tend to ignore about God is the lordship of Jesus. And, and when we, we see these truths, it balances us out. And just like if you're doing leg day, you're gonna be more stable. You're gonna have a better platform from which to live your life. This gives us necessary stability for life. Now, I've shared with you before, you know, that quote from that famous theologian, Ricky Bobby. You've all seen the movie Talladega Nights, Right? And his prayer, you know, his prayer where he's praying to sweet little baby Jesus and his tiny manger and, you know, his golden fleece diapers on and on and on. And, and it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we all laugh at that, but there's a lot of people who kind of live like that, who kind of act like Jesus is sort of like that. Jesus is warm and cuddly, makes me feel good. But I don't really wanna believe in a Jesus who would rebuke me. I don't wanna believe in a Jesus who would tell me how to live. And, and we end up believing in a Jesus that like no one would ever bow down to. See, here's the truth, we need to be balanced. We can't just only think about Jesus' love. Jesus does love us, Jesus is love, yes. But the Bible is so clear, he's also angry about our sin and about the destruction it brings to the people he created and the world that he loves. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who like to say we should never judge because Jesus never judges. And friends, that's just not true. Jesus clearly and repeatedly claims that he's a judge. A couple examples, John 5.22, Jesus says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. In Acts 10.42, the apostles say that Jesus is the one who God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. That part of the Apostles' Creed, you may remember. Revelation 19, 11 says, in righteousness, Jesus judges and wages war in righteousness. And don't forget, one day at the end of time when God wraps everything else, there is going to be a judgment seat. Does anybody remember the name of that judgment seat? The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And so here's the thing, if, if thinking of Jesus as judge is uncomfortable to you, you need to do leg day. <laughs> You're out of balance, you need to get some balance. You need to take into your heart the full truth of scripture because this Jesus, and yes, yes, he is so full of love and mercy but he is also the son of God, God in the flesh, Lord of the universe, who deserves our reverence and our awe and our obedience. He is also, he's also the one who one day, in whose presence, every person who's ever lived in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they're gonna fall flat on their face and cry out, Lord. And again, this feels so strange to our postmodern sensibilities. Do you ever ask yourself if our postmodern sensibilities are wrong? 
See, if Jesus is who he says he is, then a lot of us are asking the wrong questions about him. You know, a lot of times we think it's like up to us. You know, do I want Jesus in my life? You know, do I wanna make him Lord? Is, is, is what Jesus says about this particular subject relevant to my life? Do I like Jesus' ethics? Do I like what Jesus has to say about politics and sex and, and gender? Is it palatable to me? See, if, if Jesus is Lord, those are all the wrong questions. See, we don't, we don't get to decide if Jesus is Lord. He just is. You know, we talk about making Jesus Lord of our lives and there is some truth in that, but it, it kind of tends to make it like it's totally all up to us and we get to decide if he's, he's Lord or not. Friends, the only thing you get to decide is whether or not you will live under his lordship. That's the only thing you get to decide. You only get to decide whether or not you will live under his lordship and be renewed and find life and find flourishing or reject his lordship like Adam and Eve did and die. That's your choice. That's our option. He is the king. He is the Lord. We bow to Jesus. It's what it means to be a disciple. He's Lord. The Australian theologian Michael Byrd expresses this really well. He says, confession of Jesus as Lord implies that all religions are not equal. Jesus is not a leader who has his authority curtailed by politicians or sociologists telling him which area of life he's allowed to give people advice on. Jesus is the boss of everyone's religion, politics, economics, ethics, everything. Jesus is not interested in trying to capture a big chunk of the religious market. To the contrary, he's in the business of completely monopolizing it with the glory, justice, and power of heaven. And he has every right to do so. After all, as the firstborn of all creation, the cosmos is his work and inheritance. Do you understand that every day you've ever lived, everything you've ever seen with your eyes, it all belongs to Jesus? He made it, he's Lord. Amen? He's Lord. Third, this teaching gives us counsel on how to live our lives. And two things I'll mention. The first is it reframes discipleship for us, which I've kind of been alluding to, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Again, we need to think, if he's Lord, then following Jesus is not about getting Jesus aligned with my agenda. How many of you understand that so many of your prayers are about getting Jesus on your side to do what you want? Anybody ever try that? That's not how prayer works. You know, following Jesus is figuring out his agenda and aligning your life to that. So it reframes discipleship for us. Whatever he says, yes, I'm in. That's what we should do. Second way this counsels us on how to live is it, it just teaches us that we can all take a deep breath and calm down. He's Lord. And a lot of us, are freaking out right now about a lot of stuff going on in our country and our culture, right? So many people who name the name of Christ on both the left and on the right are angry and afraid and they're freaking out all the time. We're fighting culture wars. We're judging other Christians who approach things differently than we do and then we're throwing it all up on social media. I mean, do we believe that Jesus is Lord? And the real question is, are we living like he's Lord? 
See, what we're saying, we believe today, is that Jesus is Lord, he's king, he's sovereign, he's powerful, and that means he's got this. It really does. No matter what happens in this country, whether it all goes south, whether it turns out good, no matter what happens, Jesus is still ruling and reigning. And that counsels us, and it tells us that we can calm down and take a deep breath. Why don't you just... Take a deep breath right now. And as you are breathing air out, say Jesus is Lord in your heart. Jesus is Lord. Now, I, I kind of been talking about the macro, you know, societal, political level of things, but it's also true on a personal level. Whatever you're facing in your life, if Jesus is Lord, he loves you and he can handle it. He's the Lord. He rules, he reigns. And when we learn to trust in Jesus' lordship, it is the most comforting thing in the world. We can be a people of confidence and a people of freedom. We don't have to be coming apart with anxiety all through our lives. And what a witness that would be if God's people living in this freak out culture would stop freaking out and just be faithful to Jesus, just live in calm and winsome trust. We do not have to win the culture wars, friends. Jesus is Lord. Lastly, this reorients us. The lordship of Jesus orients us away from false hopes. False hopes. Are are you putting your hope in something that will never satisfy, that will never fulfill? So we are so prone to put our hopes in things that will never last, in temporal power structures like, like politics or in personal achievements like status or money or appearance or pleasure. This reorients us to the one true hope for our lives and for the world, and that true hope is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's son sent to save the world. And this actually, you know, brings us full circle right back to Matthew 16, where Jesus makes this question personal. See, the disciples were kind of stuck in that mode of debating opinions about Jesus. And I think a lot of times we fall into that trap as well. We're we're debating ourselves to death, some of us, but Jesus just cuts through the debate and he says, who do you say that I am? And I believe that's the question he's asking us today. And Peter actually here is our model. The historic Christian church is our motto. We are to confess as Christ followers have been confessing for 2,000 years. You are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Son of God and you are our Lord. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And this actually is the way into life eternal. As we close today, what I wanna do is invite you to bow the knee to Jesus if you've never done that before. If you've never done it before, will you today turn from your sin and repentance? Will you today turn to Jesus and trust in faith that he will save you from your sins? Will you trust him for your eternity? Will you receive his life? If you're a Christ follower today, maybe what needs to happen today is you have reflected on this part of the creed is that you need to submit your life again anew to the Lord Jesus. Is there anywhere in your life where you need to repent of not trusting him, 
You've been living your life trying to do it by yourself, not believing that he will take care of you. Is there anywhere in your life where you need to bow the knee to Jesus and just let his life flow fresh through you again? Would you give him what he deserves as your Lord, which is everything? Give him your thoughts, give him your opinions, give him your politics, give him your family, give him your work, give him your money. He's Lord. Everything you have, everything you are is his. It's his. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is good. And this is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads as we pray?